Welcome to the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons podcast. I'm your host, Peter Chalmers, a shoulder and elbow surgeon at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And I'm joined today by my co-host, Rachel Frank, a sports and shoulder surgeon at the University of Colorado in Denver. Rachel, how are you? Doing well, Pete. How are you today? Oh, I'm doing great. Before we get started, I should mention that the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeon Society, the University of Utah, the University of Colorado, or the institutions of any of our guests. Today, we have a special episode for you to talk about difficult shoulder cases. All of us have been there. You're in the OR. You're struggling to achieve your planned outcome. So we've invited two experts to go through a few of these and kind of talk about their strategies for how to make something that seems impossible possible. So first, we have Dr. Andy Jawa from the New England Baptist Hospital in Boston. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Great. Thanks so much for uh, inviting me. Really excited to be here. And then next, we have Dr. Natty Hamid from Ortho Carolina. Natty, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you, Pete. Glad to be here. Sandy, why don't you start us off? Tell us about a difficult case you did recently. What was hard and what tricks did you use to make it easier? Yeah, thanks, Pete. Um, so this is a case actually I just did last week. Um, and it's a case that really has taught me a lot. And I'm still learning a lot about this issue. And uh, in this case, it was instability of a, a reverse shoulder arthroplasty that I myself did which uh, when you do it yourself is always very humbling. Um, so this is a case, a 61-year-old muscular male uh, who had failed multiple cuff repairs and elsewhere, had sort of a Hamada 2, Hamada 3, so a little bit of acetabularization. And so right away, I, I know that he's at risk for instability. And so I make these people a little bit tighter. Um, so I did that. I typically make a pretty big sphere. In this case, I do a 36 plus 6 and um, I build up on the humeral side. And, and one of the things I noticed is I really had to add a lot on his humeral side. He had a lot of scar tissue that really stretched out. So I had both a spacer and the largest poly, but I left the operating room feeling confident. He had a subscap that I repaired and it felt good. Um, six weeks, he was fine. But as soon as I sort of let him start moving, he started feeling unstable, never had any documented dislocations, but he was having it every day, sometimes multiple times a day. Um, so I locked him up and that has worked for me in the past. And unfortunately, I've had about a half a dozen patients that have felt unstable that have all gotten better by putting them in a sling for a while. And so I did that and I thought it would get better. He was getting better, but he still was having some instability episodes. Um, so we locked him up and after that we started to do some strengthening and despite getting a little bit better, he was still unstable almost daily. And so we sort of made a decision to, at four months, if he was still unstable, to, um, to operate. And so it was a tough decision. Uh, so we went in and I wasn't quite sure what to expect, but when I went in there, it was amazing. I could just pull his shoulder out. It wasn't dislocated, but I could easily take it out. All the scar tissue had stretched. And it seemed that having all these subluxations, it just stretched out all this tissue. I was pretty confident going in there that I could make this work, but it was amazing. I went to the biggest fear there was, which in my system is a 44 plus eight, which is a huge sphere. And I easily got it in there, which made me a little bit concerned. And then I had to build up fully on the humeral side. And I left the operating room, or at that point, 
Um, I felt it was solid, but I wanted to leave the operating room where I couldn't possibly dislocate it. And so at the time, I used a technique that you, Pete, have actually described. I didn't want him to lose motion because he actually had great motion. Uh, so I did a, a cerclage technique where I actually took out a screw in the base plate and passed a suture through the base plate around the humerus. But I didn't want it to be permanent. Um, and so I did it with a, a small suture, uh, number two at the bottom with the hope that it would break just to give it a little bit extra support. So I did this last week and it's, it's interesting because I pair it with a couple of other my cases where it makes me realize how dynamic scar tissue can be. Um, and instability is uncommon, but it happens in these bigger men with rotator cuff arthropathy. So those are some of the thoughts I had. And um, any questions about that or things that you, you want me to highlight regarding some of my thoughts on this? Yeah, Andy, I actually have a couple of questions for you. So question number one, you know, you, when you think back to the index operation, it may be hard because it's a couple months ago. Do you look back yeah. now and like look at the x-rays or look at what you did and think oh, I would I would do things differently or do you think this is kind of just a freak case? You know, it's interesting. I've thought about that a lot and in hindsight, and I'm not sure I would have done anything differently at the time, um, I might have gone with a bigger sphere, but I almost always go with a 36 plus six for most males. Uh, but I think it's possible that I sh could have been tipped off by the fact that I had to go so big on his humeral side that maybe I would have wasted a sphere and gone bigger, which is a hard decision to do in the heat of battle. But um, that may be been a tip off, but I'm not sure at the time I would have done that differently. It's only in hindsight. And tell us, you so you put in the sphere, you, you never use a trial sphere. You put in the real sphere and then you do the humeral side. That's right. That's, so that's the same, I do the same thing. I definitely have those cases where you end up having to build up more on the humoral side and you think, God, did I make a mistake in my size of the sphere? Let me, let me ask you this. When you were going to do your revision, what kind of workup did you do? So you, he's, he's coming out or having these instability symptoms. You're, gonna, you're thinking about going back to the operating room. Were there any tests you ordered? Did you get an aspiration, a CT scan, you know, like a spec scan? What did you do at that point? Yeah, great question. Um, so got a CT scan, which I do for all revisions, see if maybe he was impinging on anything, uh, bone in the back, uh, maybe scar tissue when I went in there, which you can't see in CT scan. So that's one of the reasons I think of instability. I think of axillary nerve dysfunction. So um, I actually tested him clinically. And if I had any suspicions of an axillary nerve issue, I would have gotten an EMG. But he actually had unbelievable motion with a very strong deltoid, no numbness. Now I know you can have axillary dysfunction without having numbness, but his deltoid is really firing quite well. I did lab work, um, sedrate CRP, and I did an aspiration because I always think about infection in the setting of instability. I did not go further than that. Yes, you could have argued maybe I could have done a scope biopsy or something like that, um, but I left it at the aspiration, which was negative and sedrate CRP were negative for infection workup. Okay, now this is where this, this is, hopefully you're, you'll never have to get to this point, but let's say he comes back again and he's still unstable. What would you do yeah. next? That's a very difficult question because I now have maxed out everything. It's the largest fear I understand in existence. 
Um, he's maxed out on the humoral side, and he is yoked or surclage with um, a suture that is not um, very strong, uh, meant to break. And so I would first lock him up again, see if that would work um, for six weeks and saying, hey, there's not, uh, we need to try this before we do anything else. Um, I probably would get an, an EMG just to make sure I'm not missing it, even though I think uh, I'm fairly certain his, his axillary nerve is okay. Um, and then I'd probably do another workup for infection. Maybe I missed it. Maybe do a scope biopsy at that point. But then I think I would consider doing either uh, a surclage technique with more bigger suture, like you've recommended, number five, fiber wires. And I'd have to think through this, but I may consider getting a custom spacer, which I've done in the past, which is thicker. Um, but that takes some time to get. So those are some of the thoughts um, that I have if that happens, which I'm really hoping it does not. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Have you ever had a case, maybe probably not one of your own, but probably one that's come from outside, with where the, the problem is occurring instability and you've ended up revising the components? Like what, wh when would you go to say, I need to take out the base plate or take out the stem and put it lower, put it higher, whatever, whatever you want to do. Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, certain things that try inform me of this. So, you know, you and Bob have done some great work where people who are superiorly inclined on their base plate have a higher, I believe you said a sense of instability or apprehension. So one of the things I look at is inclination. His inclination was, was quite good. He was actually uh, a little bit uh, negative inclination. So I felt good about that. If it was superiorly inclined, that would be one of the things I would consider revising. You know, obviously it's very difficult to pull out a base plate because you're left with such little bone uh, or potentially such little bone. Um, it could be an issue. Uh, but if that was an issue very superiorly inclined, I would consider that. Another thing you could consider doing is cementing a stem proud or changing prostheses to ones where you could really onlay much thicker um, using a different prosthesis that has some of those, those features. I don't think I could lateralize any more than I did though in this case, but those are some of the things that I think of. Changing prosthesis, custom prosthesis, changing inclination if it was superior or if it was too high on on the glenoid. And it I I don't want to assume, but it sounds like you're using a DGO system. So you're probably using a 135 then on the humoral side, correct? Correct. And and you make a good point there, which I think you're implying, which is um, potentially a 155 may um, lead to less instability in and um, I think there may be some truth to that. I used um, a system that was 155 for a long time uh, that only had two and a half millimeters of offset. And knock on wood, I, I did far fewer of those. I've seen a fair amount of HO and notching, but I have not seen any instability in those, in those cases. So I think there may be something you said to very distalizing, having a more, having a higher shaft angle. Well, I, I mean, I don't think it's 
I, it's hard to know. I mean, there's definitely more notching with 155 than 135. I think that's totally clear from the literature, but it's harder to know about instability. Let me let me ask you this. There's there's a couple of other things you think about. Have you have you had any cases where you've seen, you know, bone growing underneath or impinging bone that you think is causing instability? But I mean, this is a little early for that. But um, has that ever been a cause for revision for instability for you? Uh, for me, it has not, but it's something that I'm acutely aware of when I actually put in base plates right now, because uh, I definitely see patients where if there's bone in the back, you can lever off of that. I have had done a revision for scar tissue that was quite thickened, uh, inferiorly in a revision that looked like it was creating instability. Um, and I've done one for a stress fracture as well that led to instability, but not for bone though. It's something that is high in my mind, but I actually haven't done that yet, but I've, I've seen that or heard other people talk about that. Now, in that last case, did you fix the stress fracture to stabilize the shoulder? That was a, um, very interesting case where the stress fracture actually healed on its own. Uh, but in a position, so after the stress fracture, the patient dislocated, close reduced, and I let the stretch fracture stay in position, um, did not fix it because I'm not sure I'd be able to, but it actually healed in that position, um, but she remained unstable. And after she healed, I had to go back to put a, a larger sphere in it. Uh, but it's interesting because that lack of tension in the the deltoid clearly led to the instability. So it healed on its own, but I was only able to resolve the instability after, after it healed and I went to a bigger sphere. And actually use your cerclage technique. Now tell me how you do the cerclage. Do you, you, you drill behind the base plate or you pass through a hole in the base plate? Yeah, <laughs> so the first one I did, um, it was, it was very difficult. I, I, I was looking through how you guys did it. I, I really struggled. Um, I drilled behind the base plate and then put a Houston suture passer and couldn't find it. And, and eventually I got it and I was able to pass a suture um, uh, retrograde through the hole and then around and into the humerus. I drilled into the humerus and tied over the humerus. So that was a struggle. And then I heard someone, I think it was Michael O'Brien had this a really good idea um, where he took out a screw in a base plate and passed it through a uh, screw hole. So I drilled it anterior through the screw hole. I was able to pass a suture. And I was worried that it would not let the glenosphere reduce. But in this case, it actually, I was able to put the glenosphere down I was, it was able to slide. So I knew it wasn't levering out the glenosphere. So that's how I did it this time. And that was only um, the second time I've had to use it. So one thing I think actually does make the cerclage technique easier is to drill from the back. Okay. So just like, you know, Pascal does his drilling for the ladder J, you know, put a spinal needle in the back, make sure you're parallel, drill from the back, and then you can very easily find the drill and find the Houston suture pass by just using your, 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 your kind of, Batman and Robbie or Glennard retractor on the interior cortex. The problem with drilling the front, the front, at least for me, has always been that the straps are in the way. So 
So it changes yeah. your angle and you're exiting very posterior, very immediately posteriorly. Um, That's a great suggestion. Next time, hopefully there won't, I know, I'm sure there will be a next time, but uh, I will definitely consider doing that. Um, well, that's a that's a great case. I um, definitely it. I will say I wish I could say that I'd never had this location, but I I've had them, and it definitely humbles you. It forces I I for me at least it forces you I think to really critically assess your implant position. And um, I've definitely had cases where I've looked at my own and said I wish I you know let's do things slightly differently to try and prevent this from happening again, and to really think about all the things you mentioned. So I really appreciate going going through that with us. Great, thanks. Natty, anything else you'd add? Any other thoughts you have about instability post-traverse here? Yeah, you know, Andy had a, a great case for us there. And uh, I was thinking back, and I don't think I've ever had a female patient have instability after a primary reverse. It's always, for me, been exactly what Andy described, a, usually a, a heavy set not too old gentleman with cuffed arthropathy. And it, for me, it's always been a male for primary reverse instability. And, uh, you know, I, when I have a, a bigger male and I'm thinking that it may be a case where I gotta be careful and it may be a higher risk for instability, I actually do some things that I would have thought a few years ago I would not have done. For example, I'll actually make a less aggressive humeral head cut, uh, which was, not what I would have done starting practice in a bigger gentleman, I would make a more aggressive cut. But I wanna, I wanna be able to preserve as much of the, uh, the, the proximal humerus and, and preserve the deltoid wrap as much as I can. And so I'll make a less aggressive cut for those. I'll really try and uh, focus on getting both glenoid and humeral lateralization. For me, I find that to be the most stable situation. And so I will use an onlay prosthesis for those cases so I can uh, maximize humeral lateralization. I think that gives me more stability at time zero. Uh, but once you get to the, the setting that Andy described in, in the case of instability, then you gotta make tough decisions about upsizing the sphere in the revision setting. I will, in those cases, use a retentive liner or a deep dish poly, and most systems have that as an option. Uh, I know it sets up for potential poly wear and stuff down the road, but once they have instability like that, I really am worried they're gonna go down a road of having persistent instability. As Andy described, once that scar tissue starts to get really loose, you feel like you're just chasing your tail with it. So I'll be pretty aggressive at that first revision to make sure we give them a stable situation. Andy, I wanted to ask you one more question. I mean, you guys have recently done some just phenomenal work learning about risk factors for chromial stress fractures. Certainly that's to some degree a tension problem and you could say instability is also somewhat of a tension problem. Has that research changed your thinking about instability post-reverse? Um, the stress fracture, so we're, it's not fully completed. We have not, we're just collecting or getting all the data together for implant related stress fractures. Um, but yeah, I mean, it hasn't changed mine for instability, but it has changed me in terms of what I do for women, um, which is stress fractures for me happen in rotator cuff arthropathy, 
women who are osteoporotic. So I, I definitely am less aggressive in my tension in women who have rotator cuff arthropathy and counsel them differently. Um, but again, like Nani mentioned, I don't see instability in women, so I'm not worried about that. And I will go looser in women because I'm not worried about instability as much, even in the setting of rotator cuff arthropathy. That might have not answered your question perfectly, but um, those are some of the changes I made based on some of that work. Maddie, can you tell us about a difficult case that you did recently and where did the struggle originate and how did you overcome that challenge? What uh, what do you have to rival what we just heard? Uh, well, I'll switch gears a little bit. Rachel, you may get perked up with this one. Um, let's talk about an instability case. Um, this is a 21-year-old uh, young man uh, who has fairly profound autism that presented to see me with his mother and he really requires his mother to be there at all times. Uh, when I meet with him and his mother, he's, you know, he, he's listening to music, he's watching, um, you know, cartoons on his iPad, and he's uh, he's friendly, but uh, is is very uh, is is very evasive and defensive when you, you try and either interact with him or examine him. And uh, so his mother gives me most of the history. He uh, he also has a seizure disorder. And he's had grand mal seizures for many years, and it's picked up in frequency um, over the last several years. And he first had a dislocation, she reported several years ago, and now he has uh, shoulder dislocations uh, on a regular basis. They used to be reducible at home where she can reduce the shoulder uh, just by relaxing him and, and just giving it time. But she said that he's become increasingly more uh, difficult and to uh, and, and less cooperative in letting her do that. And so they're taking more and more visits to the ER to have sedation and close reductions, which, as you can imagine, for his situation and his mother is fairly taxing on them. And it, it's really wearing on them and frustrations are growing. And so they, they want to have a surgical solution and, and uh, they see a neurologist, his mother's extremely involved in his care and um, he's averaging probably about three visits or so a month going to the ER for closed reductions. And he's having about one grand mal seizure a month right now. So I, uh, I get x-rays and he has, um, he has, What's obvious on the plain film is anterior glenoid deficiency, and what it doesn't appear to be a very large whole sacs. We get a CT scan, which shows about a 30% anterior glenoid rim deficiency, and actually, surprisingly, a fairly small whole sacs lesion. And the, the first thing I do, is, as I'm sure you guys would too as well, is we, I tell his mother that we need to get his seizures under better control. And I have them go back to the neurologist to see if they can fine-tune medications to see if we can eliminate the monthly grand mal seizures. And they come back to see me a few months later in pretty much the exact same situation. Uh, still having the same number of seizures. The neurologist says they've pretty much optimized his uh, seizure disorder and they don't feel that they're going to be able to get him down to ever being seizure free and even having less seizures than he's having. And so they're, they're basically saying, this is what it is. And can we do anything? And 
it's a tough situation at this point for me because I, I don't know if I'm just going to have a surgery for him that's, that is doomed to fail. And I'm also not only worried about the seizures, I'm also worried about his compliance just wearing a sling afterwards. Uh, he's not cooperative at all with that. And his mother doesn't feel like he'd be able to wear a sling after surgery. She thinks he would just rip it off as soon as they got home. And so I'm not really sure what to do with them. Uh, you know, it seems like it's completely debilitating him, his, the quality of life for him and his mother. And uh, I talked to a few of my partners. I give it a lot of thought. And uh, we decided to do a surgery on him. And uh, I'll tell you what we did. We, uh, I, I did an open ladder J. And um, the tough decision for me with him, and I thought well, the most challenging case wasn't the surgery itself, was how do I how do I help protect the surgery and protect him from himself and, um, and gain compliance? And I did something with him that I didn't think I would ever have to do after residency. We actually put him in a shoulder spike cast. And uh, I had one of my pediatric partners help me because I haven't done that in a while. But we put him in a full, uh, I guess you could call it like three-quarter shoulder spike cast uh, that completely immobilized him. And we did that for about three and a half weeks or so, took the cast off and his shoulder was stiff as could be, just really stiff. X-ray looked great, didn't have any seizures, surprisingly, in the first first month, month or so. Um, and then he, you know, he worked with therapy, which was really difficult for him. And I don't know if that really gave us much improvement, more than just the time of uh, letting his, his scar tissue loosen up. And uh, I just saw him back probably over a year out from his surgery. And um, he had had multiple grand mal seizures and his, uh, his latter J healed. There was some bone resorption, but uh, he did not have any recurrence of instability. And uh, I, uh, I was thankful for that. And his mother uh, is happy. He still has a fairly stiff shoulder, uh, but he can use it for ADLs and it's stable. And they're happy. They're happy that um, the shoulder is stable and that uh, he can do you know, everything he wants to do with it. And so for me, the challenging part of this case was, one, I really thought long and hard about operating on him. And the indication to do surgery for me was difficult. And the second was how to take care of it afterwards. And, um, and I think looking back, I think the cast was the right option for him. And it's something that uh, I think can be useful in the in the right situation if you have uh, if you have a patient like this that really can't uh, be compliant whatsoever with with immobilization after surgery. Have you ever done it, Rachel? I was just going to say, what a case! I, I've certainly had this patient population. Um, I've never put on a shoulder spike a cast, so I, I have some questions on that. Um, what, what position do you put the the shoulder in and the elbow in when you're putting on this um, the spike cast, or do you leave the elbow free for you know for him to be able to use? Yeah, so we uh, we did leave the elbow free, uh, but we uh, we immobilized in it at about twenty degrees of abduction, and we tried to keep it in about neutral rotation. But his his hand was free to use for waist level activities, and he could able to reach his mouth uh, with his arm, but just barely, just barely with that. And so his hand, his hand and his forearm are free. 
And with this degree of bone loss, you mentioned 30%, but a small hill sacks. What, what's your tipping point for going from a ladder jade to a free bone block, be it distal tibia or iliac crust? Um, when, when do you decide to, to make the change over to a bigger graft? You know, for me, I, um, I have never done anything other than a ladder J for primary, for a primary case. I think the, the power of the, uh, the sling effect, the conjoint tendon, the, uh, the use of the, uh, autograft, uh, is, um, is very powerful for me. And I would much prefer that than the structural graft, even in the setting of a very large bone defect. And so I've never come across a case where I didn't feel that the ladder J would be the most appropriate primary treatment. Yeah. I think this is one great example where that sling effect, it makes up for, even if the, the coracoid can't account for all that bone loss, the sling effect helps with stability. Um, we we've looked at recently patients with seizures and undergoing ladder J and as everyone I'm sure can imagine the, the complication rates and frustration rates are so high. What do you, do you change your screw fixation in these cases or what implants do you use? Um, any thoughts on titanium versus stainless cannulated versus non-cannulated washers or no washers, or does his seizure history did not play into that decision-making at all? Well, you know, I guess it doesn't really play into it because I already used this sort of old school method of using four or five solid malleolar screws, which are about as big as you could possibly use. Um, and the tough part about that is you're drilling really big holes in a small little bone. And you got to be really, really uh, careful about where you drill your two holes. And I'm always worried about uh, uh, those, those two holes uh, either cracking out the side or joining, uh, joining each other. Um, but, you know, that's the biggest screw I can use. So I wouldn't really change that for this case. But if I were someone that used smaller screws or cannulated, I would certainly think twice about that, especially a cannulated option. I, I would prefer a solid screw because there's no question that, you know, over the year he put pressure on that bone graft. And, you know, I think you highlighted one of the more challenging scenarios that comes up in terms of that desire to want the seizures to be under control before you operate. Um, and I, I had a couple of these uh, several years ago in my board collection phase where you really want a documented seizure-free period of three or so months before you do this. But obviously in this case, you, you don't really have that. How, how do you advise your, your residents and fellows on, on how to approach that, say, when they're in board collection? Do you, do you say, wait um, and just see, or do you do what you did, which I love? I mean, you did as, as much as you could do in terms of optimization, talk to the neurologist, et cetera. How do you advise your trainees on managing these difficult patients with seizure disorders? Well, you know, it's easy for us as a surgeon to, you know, to kick them out and send them to the neurologist. But, you know, if you um, if you talk to the neurologist, uh, you know, like we did in this case, uh, you know, they they can tell you there's nothing else we can do sometimes. And and sometimes they can. And, and frequently the, the seizure disorder can be under much better control. But if you if you get a case where the neurologist is telling you, the family is telling you this is as good as it's ever going to be. I don't think you can just turn your uh, turn a cold shoulder to that. And, you know, it, it is certainly a risk that everyone undertakes, not only the patient, but you as well. And if, if it's, if it's a case where you feel like the patient is optimized, then you just have to talk to them about it. And, 
and everyone goes through it together and you take the risk uh, together. And, and um, you know, I, I think just refusing, flat out refusing to, to offer a stabilization procedure, um, you know, for me, I don't know if that's the right thing. Now, this is, a, this is a really difficult case. I'm super glad you brought this one up because it's one that I think we all encounter and I have not heard a lot of good solutions to. I have two, two questions for you. Question number one is I've heard people say that in seizures, the sling effect can work against you because the contraction of the short head of the biceps and the cochlear will pull the graft off the glenoid. Did you, do you think that's true? Did you think at all about a free of this or tibia or maybe cutting, cutting the sling after, you know, after you fixated your graft in this case? That's question number one. And then question number two I have for you is, have you ever used Botox in this kind of situation to try and shut down the muscles, to try and give the patient a period of time where even if they had a seizure, it wouldn't disrupt your fixation? Oh, great point. I, I, uh, I, I have not cut the conjoint. I would not dare do that. And I, I'm not sure I believe in that. You know, there's a lot of muscle force that's a, that, that you have with a seizure. And I'm not sure that the the biceps pulling on the graft is the predominant one. I, I would worry much more about the uh, the other uh, um, shoulder musculature that's causing the dislocation more than that yanking the graft off. Uh, but I, I can see that uh, being somewhat of a concern. And the, the Botox is a great idea and uh, I haven't done it. I haven't really heard of anyone doing it uh, in, in a case like this to help protect your, your shoulder afterwards. Um, I um, I haven't really heard of anyone doing that. Have you? I, I I did it once. I did it for a patient with cerebral palsy who needed a reverse, who had all this terrible muscle spasm. And I was worried about disrupting the fixation on my base plate. And I will tell you, it worked great. But the only reason I was able to get insurance to pay for it was because she already had cerebral palsy. But I think that's the, the difficulty is how you get anyone to pay for it. But I have often wondered why we don't use it more in shoulder surgery. And I think that the primary reason is cost, which is not a great reason. Yeah, but, but great idea, though. I really like that. All right, Andy, tell us about a difficult case you have coming up, one where you anticipate there's going to be trouble. And how are you planning to deal with that in advance? Yeah, thanks. Um, so I have a case coming up which uh, similar to Nadi is, is one of these situations where uh, it's an older woman who I've met with many times uh, because I'm not sure about the wisdom of doing this case, um, but you also don't feel like you can turn a cold shoulder. So this is an 83-year-old woman who's actually in, in quite good health and has severe erosion into her glenoid and has 53 degrees of retroversion and about two degrees of inferior inclination. So that's not as much of the issue. And when we met initially a year and a half ago, I told her, I'm not sure it would be a wise idea to do the surgery. And she wasn't in enough pain that um, I felt that we should move forward I work, she's, she's very thin and, and one of the other complications that I have seen, we're talking about older, uh, talking about muscular men before, but with thin older women, I unfortunately have a series of, of nerve injuries. So I, I worry about that. So we talked about the risk and benefits 
and decided not to do surgery. She now, we have met now a couple times and she's in such severe pain that she's willing to take the risk of base plate failure of, you know, nerve injury to do uh, surgery. And, and maybe that surgery is a reverse, maybe it's a hemi, but I'm planning on doing a reverse because I worry about a hemi in a situation like this just causing more erosion. So I'm planning this with PSI using the alternate center line. Um, and I, I've had similar, case, uh, similar cases, but not as much retroversion. And I actually trialed this in, I use DJO as we mentioned, but I also have used Right Medical, I've used a number of things. So the things I'm thinking of doing are either custom implant, alternate center line. I've actually looked to see if I could use an augment. It's just not big enough. And it also makes me start thinking about different implants and how they are designed differently. One that has a big boss on it will not work here because it'll blow it out. So I'm looking for something that has very small footprint. The downside of that is when you have a small footprint, you only have ingrowth on the glenoid side, but not within the vault. So the plan is to use the humeral head. And as Greg Nicholson has shown, you can just put that head, it fits right into the defect alternate center line. And then I'm actually doing something where you can use a K wire and I'm using the cannulated screw set to go over where I put the K wire for PSI so that it will find its track. I've additionally sent this to other people who use this planning software to get their ideas. And I've adjusted it a little bit based on that. So those are some of my thoughts, um, making a big head cut and um, crossing my fingers. <laughs> so I was wondering if you had uh, thoughts on, on cases like this or, or um, any advice for me. Can I ask you a couple more questions about your plan? Of course, of so, course. You're planning to use the head, or will you have a backup graft available? Like what if you get in there and you put your thumb and the head is just nothing? Yeah, I will have femoral head allograft available though I plan to use the allograft if it is not great. I am planning to put the cortical bone, the subchondral bone against the defect, decorticating it a little bit, not putting the cancellous bone towards the glenoid, if that makes sense. Are you planning to completely correct or are you planning to just partially correct? Um, I'm planning to partially correct um, and it gets it the way that I planned it using it. Well, I, I have to remind myself, when you use the alternate center line, you, you actually are, are more antiverted. And so I think the number that it actually comes to is, is pretty close to neutral, but you're, the base plate is only on, in this case, 23% of native bone, and the rest is graft in the back. Now, tell us a little bit about you have a you have a guide. You're, they're custom making a guide for you. Correct. For this case, and yes. then the 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 graft. You know, you you use the guide to place your pin, and yep. then you're going to drill a hole in the graft, and the the graft is going to go over the pin, kind of like a donut. Yeah. Um, in this case, no. Um, the anterior portion is going to be the native bone, 
and the way that it plans it, it's really going to fill mainly the posterior part of, of the base plate. Um, so I will create a little bit, it's going to be like a half donut a little bit, um, and it'll just kind of like a C go right ar around um, sort of that where I'm putting in the screw. So there is a part of the screw that is exposed in the back, which this graft will go around. And then the, the last question I have for you, you'd mentioned you you you'd mentioned you have this other cannulated screw setter. What what sets are you calling for for this case? Are you are you calling for like a cannulated 4.0, a cannulated 3.0, small frag? What are you calling yeah. for to get that? So the center screw in this set is a 6.5 center screw. So I'm calling for a 6.5 cannulated screw set. So I'm using the K wire for that set, uh, and then drilling over that. Uh, so that it's going to be the uh, screw will go exactly in that line which I I drilled with the PSI. And you've got no other fixation of the graft. The, the fixation graft would just be screws through the base plate through the graft into the glenoid. I'm actually considering. Um, I will also have a Cynthia screw set. I'm considering um, placing a compression screw out of the way in the graft if I'm able to get it. And what, what size screw would you use for that, and where would you try and put it? Yeah, I'd probably put it uh, posterior, superior. I'd probably use a, a regular 3.5 compression screw if I can. Natty, I'm, I'm sure you've had cases like this. When you hear all this, what are your thoughts about what you would do, how you would handle this kind of situation? Yeah, it's a good plan. I think, I think you know, a lot of the surgery is done before you get to the operating room, you know, planning it out deciding how much of the of the deformity you want to correct. Uh, I, I think you'll be fine using the humeral head autograft. I like that idea. I, uh, I feel much more comfortable with that than allograft. Um, you know, I think the alternate center line is, um, as we've seen with recent studies, is a, uh, is a good method and uh, can hold up at medium term results. Uh, uh, at least we know that by the literature. And uh, I think you have a very good chance of having a really good outcome with that case, even though the uh, the the imaging studies uh, are quite intimidating. Let me let me ask you one more question, Andy. Just for listeners who may not be familiar with what the alternate center line is, can you describe what that means? Yeah, there's a, a paper where Mark Frankel described this with I think John Levy was on that as well, where, uh, you know, the best way I can describe it is when you put in a regular base plate in, in someone who's not retroverted, the screw will come out anteriorly through your vault. Um, but the alternative center line is when you look at the confluence of the bone of the scapular plane, of uh, the body of the scapula, the coracoid, and then um, the bone that goes to the acromion, that confluence creates a line, the supraspinatus fossa, essentially, that goes all the way out to the trigonum, which is medial. That line, which we see on the x-ray, that, that cortical bone, is the alternate center line, which is actually anaverted relative to the glenoid and actually tips slightly superiorly. 
And it's this column of bone that's constant regardless of how much erosion there is. And it's a very thick column of bone that's very reliable that Mark Frankel described as a way to do these kind of cases when there's significant erosion, you can always rely on that column of bone. Natty, how about you? Do you have a difficult case coming up on the schedule that's keeping you up at night, making you think and think and think? And if so, what will the issues be and how are you going to prepare for that? Okay, Rachel, I do. And uh, stick with me. This one's a little tricky. Um, okay, this guy is, uh, this is probably one of my toughest complications I've had uh, in recent memory. So, He's a 56-year-old athletic gentleman with a chronic AC separation that um, has a, a profound separation of the AC joint. He's been managing well, but it's, it's affecting his high level of function, including tennis. And uh, interestingly, he had a, an AC reconstruction done on his other side years ago, which subsequently failed and, and kind of looks like this side. And so it's uh, what you would expect on the X-ray, type 5 AC separation. And uh, we perform an AC reconstruction, and uh, I use a corcoclavicular ligament anatomic reconstruction technique using autograft, or sorry, allograft tissue uh, looped around the coracoid uh, with two bone tunnels in the in the clavicle, and I use small little peak screws. And uh, he's doing well postoperatively, and then he's probably approaching eight weeks postop. And he comes in and he had initial post-op visit at two weeks. Everything looked great. And then he comes in at eight weeks and uh, not doing well. He, uh, he had lost his entire reduction and he's back to where he was pre-op. Um, and his x-ray shows he has significant bone tunnel widening on both his bone tunnels. And a CT scan had done at this point reveals that his coracoid is now broken. And um, his clavicle is high. And um, we, we talk about treatment options and because of the, the bone resorption he has in his bone tunnels, I'm certainly concerned about an infection in his case. And uh, we discuss treatment options and um, we plan on a surgery, which was gonna be uh, a week later. And in the meantime, he develops a draining wound over the distal clavicle, which is now completely subcutaneous. The distal clavicle is, is right under the skin. And now he develops quite quickly a draining wound that's probably five millimeters in size right over the end of his clavicle. And so this really went south really quick. And so, the uh, the plan at that point was um, is to treat him for a presumed infection, but the 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 wound over the clavicle and how subcutaneous the clavicle was was a, certainly a concern for me. That uh, just treating infection and not doing anything else uh, was going to potentially lead to further soft tissue compromise and uh, and potentially failure to heal that open wound. And so I felt like more than just a typical IND and re removal of the material was necessary. And so what I performed at this point was we, uh, we took him back and did an extensive IND, multiple cultures, which, all, which 
I believe three out of five grew P acnes. And to stabilize the clavicle, I elected to use a uh, distal clavicle locking plate that spanned from his acromion on top of the acromion across the clavicle to bridge across the AC joint. And the bone tunnels were large, extremely large, and, and uh, uh, making it fairly high risk for fracture through the more medial bone tunnel, actually. And so the, uh, I used a, a bridge plate that was quite long that got four good screws medial to the medial bone tunnel. But I used an antibiotic coated plate, uh, uh, which is a technique that has um, been described before, but uh, is um, uh, used frequently by our trauma surgeons uh, uh, in Charlotte. And, and so we, we used an antibiotic coated plate and we used calcium sulfate beads after a thorough IND that we placed uh, into the coracoclavicular area. His coracoid bone uh, was resorbed just like the bone tunnels were. So his coracoid is just a wafer of bone and not amenable to any, any future use for fixation. Uh, he's been placed on uh, IV antibiotics and he's now about three weeks post-op. And uh, his wound is healed well, his, his alignment is great. Um, and the question now is, what do you do with them? How long do you leave this bridge plate in? When do you consider and do you consider any future reconstructive surgery uh, to be able to stabilize his AC joint? Um, and when are you confident that his infection is clear? So help me out. I, what This is actually making me very nervous because I just did a revision AC joint reconstruction last week. Um, after a, a chronic failed grade five from over um, 10 years ago performed uh, by what seemed like a great technique with a graft with two huge holes in the clavicle. Um, fortunately, no fractured coracoid and no wound issues, but now I'm getting very worried because this gentleman's only a week out from our revision. Um, it, you know, I think I, I think it's really difficult and I'd be curious as to what everyone, including Pete and Andy, think in terms of what do you do next in terms of the, the plate? I think that plate's obviously going to be irritating for function, but once you, you know, if you can clear the infection, which hopefully you have, and he's just, you know, he stays wound free, infection free, then um, is it worth going back in there and taking that out or is where we're at? What, what are you leaning toward? If, if you, yeah, I, if you go infection free, wound free, get to three, you know, three months and everything looks good. What, what's your inclination just knowing the patient about their function and, and how they'll tolerate that plate? Yeah. He, he's been a trooper through this whole thing. He's a really resilient guy and he, he's committed to, um, you know, whatever it takes to get a good shoulder. And my plan for him, uh, would be if everything clears up fine, uh, I would go back and I'd remove the plate. Uh, I would take more cultures, do another IND, but at the same stage, what I would plan on doing is uh, an autograft reconstruction, and I would use suture anchors in the base of the coracoid. Uh, I would use um, the suture anchors to secure the autograft uh, to the base of the coracoid, bring the graft through the uh, existing bone tunnels. But I'd also use a small plate just to reinforce those bone tunnels and protect in the future, but that does not does not span the AC joint anymore. 
uh, just over the distal clavicle, reinforce the bone tunnels and give you something stable that you can really uh, put a robust repair on. And then I would use, uh, I would get as many suture anchors as I could uh, around that uh, coracoid base so that I could use both the graft as well as just suture fixation looped around the coracoid and through the coracoid uh, uh, um, plate holes to, uh, to gain fixation to, to keep the clavicle in place. And, uh, and hopefully that uh, with the spanning plate in place that uh, we've gotten a fair amount of granulation tissue in there that'll help uh, give it support and so that it, it won't want to uh, uh, be uh, uh, a, a clavicle that wants to shoot back up again. But uh, that's my plan for moving forward here. And uh, I'm optimistic, but this is certainly the, the worst piacnes infection I've ever seen. Um, and it's, uh, you know, it's one of those cases where you, you, you definitely lose sleep at night about uh, how to take care of them and, and uh, whether you'll be able to give them a good result. A super complicated case, and obviously you've done everything possible to, to get this back to a steady state. What's the coracoid looking like right now or when you took them back? Because you, you said there was a fracture. Um, what's the status of the coracoid now, and what do you anticipate that to be in a few months? Yeah, the, the coracoid process itself, it, it, it must have went through a, an aggressive bone resorption uh, phase, just like the bone tunnels in the clavicle did, because it's, it, it's quite resorbed and it's distracted. And so it's, it's um, I don't think it's a pain generator, nor do I think it's uh, an issue for him, but it's not anything that will be able to uh, support uh, any future reconstruction. Tough case for sure. Peter, Andy, do you have any other thoughts as to what you might do? I mean, I, in our, in my recent revision, we, um, we used a device that I, I hadn't used before called the AC joint lockdown, where you loop the, the high strength, um, essentially tape around the coracoid, and then you um, loop that posteriorly around the clavicle and you secure it with a screw from A to P, which seemed I hope in this case, like an ideal scenario, because there was really no more room on the clavicle to place any north to south holes, whether it be for anchors or for buttons or for screws or for anything. And then we we augmented with a graft and fixed to the acromion um, with suture anchors. But um, it, but that's going to be a fracture risk too, because we're creating now an A to P uh, hole in the in the clavicle where there's already two large north to south holes. Uh, Peter, Andy, do you guys have any other um, tips or tricks for these revision AC joint reconstructions? I could jump in and um, I haven't done these in, in a long time, but Nadia, I really like your idea of using a plate over the residual uh, large holes as a uh, fixation. You know, I remember using, this is uh, maybe a, not a great analogy, but I would, uh, a similar type case for a distal biceps, and it was a very large hole. I use a uh, modular hand plate just to reinforce it. So I really like that idea. I actually think your plan is great going to the coracoid. The, the piece that I think, you know, you, you're worried about, I'm worried about it is the infection piece, obviously. You know, when do you stop antibiotics? You know, do you put him on chronic suppression for some time after 
you put the plate on or do this reconstruction. What are your thoughts on that? Or are you just going to stop, see how it goes before you go back and do the revision? I, I'm, I'm going to push for him to be treated aggressively, Andy. I, I think there's too much on the line to not continue suppression until we get uh, graft healing. So I'm going to be super aggressive with continuing his antibiotics through the course of this stage reconstruction. Yeah, I think it's a great, it's a, it's a very good plan. Well, Nadi, I think you win for the, the most, the cases where there was the most number of and then this and then this and then this. And every time you would add another detail, my heart would sink to think, oh, this is so impossible. But I think your plan sounds awesome. I love the idea of putting anchors in the chloroquine base um, and using autograft and using a plate to reinforce. And I, I, I want to thank both of you guys for coming on. I mean, there were so, this was such an action pack, so many tips efficiently packed into one hour to deal with some really hard situations and i think a lot of our listeners can 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 take a ton of pearls here to get themselves out of a jam if they're in one in the future so thank you both so much for doing this with us i really appreciate it thank you so much pete and rachel for having us yeah this is great i really enjoyed it i really uh i learned a lot as i always do in these so thank you again for inviting uh me pete and rachel and Great case is Nadi. Thank you. You too, Andy. Yeah, guys, thank you so much. I think our listeners are really going to enjoy this one. And it, um, I agree with Pete, as you guys both brought up your cases, just thinking about the layers upon layers of what is happening and how much thought has to go into these. Um, I think hopefully, especially for all of our young listeners, you realize from uh, these experienced surgeons that you still have to prep for every case and nothing is like the textbook. So thank you guys for being willing to share these cases and in particular the complications and being willing to discuss that with us. Um, that's really all the time we have for this podcast today. We want to thank our guests so much for coming on. For all of our shoulder and elbow listeners out there, stay safe, stay healthy. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast. And for Pete Chalmers, I'm Rachel Frank, and we'll see you next time.